Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. We are still in Luke chapter 1. Today we're going to look at verses 39 to 56. In the blue Bibles, you can find that on page 948. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 39. As you guys are turning there, I was just thinking this morning as I was preparing, just reflecting. I, I am so thankful that I get to do this with you week in and week out. I love preaching to you, church. I love preaching, but I especially love preaching to you. So I'm thankful to God for, for people who love, love to eat the food of God's word and it makes it a joy to cook when the people that you're feeding love to eat. So thank you for being hungry. This morning we're looking at verses 39 to 56. So hear the word of the Lord. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me? That the mother of my Lord should come to me. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this week I've been thinking a lot about two things. I've been thinking a lot about singing and geysers. Why geysers? Good question. Well, in case you don't know, this summer my family and I, Lord willing, are planning to go to Yellowstone National Park. And whenever you tell somebody that you're going to Yellowstone, one of the first things everyone thinks of is Old Faithful. In case you're not familiar with Old Faithful, it's a geyser that is so named because it faithfully or regularly shoots out bursts of hot water high into the sky. So I was curious, why? Why did, I mean, I have holes in my ground and no water ever comes shooting out of them. So what is it about their holes that has water shooting out? Well, here's what my research uncovered. Geysers are basically made from holes in the earth that are like long tubes that run deep into the heart of the earth's crust. 
And in case you don't know, down in the earth's crust, it's extremely hot. So as water gathers into these tubes, the water closest to the bottom starts to boil. And as enough of the water comes in and starts to boil, pressure builds. And the water has to go somewhere. So sooner or later, it just explodes out of the ground until the water is released and it starts all over again. Water starts to trickle back in. And as I was thinking about those geysers this week, the thought occurred to me, I think these geysers help explain why Christians are a singing people. Because as the water of God's word goes down into the core of our hearts, and we hear of all that God has done for us, that good news causes our hearts to boil over in joy and thankfulness. And as that pressure of joy builds and builds sooner or later, it must come bursting forth in a geyser of singing. See, unlike most other religions, God's people have always been marked by singing. And we see this all over the Bible. From Adam singing when he first saw Eve, to the song of Moses when God delivers Israel from Egypt, to the Psalms, a whole book in our Bible, the longest book in our Bible about singing, to the hymns about Christ and Philippians and Colossians and elsewhere, to the songs of the elders and the redeemed and Revelation. Singing is everywhere in the Bible. We're even told that trees and hills and rocks, the sun, the moon, the stars, will all sing in worship. God's mighty acts are more than can simply be spoken. Sooner or later, they must be sung. So, is it any wonder that here in Luke, as we read about the coming of the Son of God into the world, that those involved in the story would burst forth into song. In fact, as Luke records the coming of Jesus, starting here and over the next few chapters, we have at least four songs recorded for us. The first song is what we're looking at today, and it's sung by Mary. It's often called the Magnificat. The second will be sung by Zechariah next week when John the Baptist is born and traditionally has been called the Benedictus. Then you've got the angels. They say, I don't want the people to have all the fun. So they get in on the singing when they sing their good news to the shepherds in Luke 2. In a song historically called the Gloria. And finally, when Jesus is presented at the temple, old Simeon sings what is now called the Nunc Dimittis. Four songs that practically turn Luke 1 and Luke 2 basically into a musical. All right? It's no longer a story. It's a musical. And each of these four songs are like geysers of worship bursting forth in joy that God's redemption is coming. So, as we look at the first song in our passage this morning, here's our, here's our outline of where we're going to go. In one sense, it's really simple. Two main sections. Mary's visit, Mary's song. Now, to kind of help give you some handles, I broke the song down into three sections. Here's what I think she's doing in her song. She starts off, she magnifies God. Who is that? He's the mighty God who does great things for his humble servants. Why? Because he is the helper of the humble. Okay, so that's where we're going today. Simple outline. Let's go. 
So remember last time, Mary had just received news from the angel Gabriel that as a virgin, she would conceive a son who would be called Holy, the Son of God, and who would reign as king forever. This angel also told her something else back in verse 36. It says, And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. So put yourself in Mary's shoes. She just got this life-altering news. And what's the first thing you want to do when you get life-altering news? Tell somebody. But who could she talk to about this? Who's going to believe her? Who would understand? Like, oh, yeah, I get it. So an angel showed up, said that you, a virgin, are going to have a baby. Yeah. Oh, I've heard. Yeah, that's happened to me too, actually. No. Nobody would understand. Nobody would get it. But well, what about her relative Elizabeth? who was a fellow miracle mom. So as Mary's told this about her relative, we read in verse 39, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. So she just, it says she goes with haste. She hears that and says, I I gotta go see Elizabeth. And keep in mind, this, this was not just popping in next door. Okay, she didn't just drive down the block to go see Elizabeth. This was a rugged journey of about 80 to 100 miles that would take her, most people say, about three or four days. So the question arises, well, why did she go? And this is important because a lot of people will just speculate and they'll say, oh, well, clearly she's probably leaving town because she wants to hide this pregnancy. She doesn't want people talking and chattering. But if you actually look at the story, that doesn't make sense. She has just conceived. She won't be showing for a while. And then you see at the end of our passage in verse 55, she actually goes back to her hometown after the first trimester, just when she would be starting to be noticeable. So she's clearly not leaving town to hide what God has done. Instead, she's going because she wants to see what God has done in Elizabeth. And she wants to talk with a fellow recipient of God's grace. Can you imagine, again, how isolating it would have been for Mary, but then to show up at Elizabeth, how sweet it would have been for these two women to to just hug, to share their joy and what God had done for them, to look forward together to what he was going to do, to just marvel at his grace and his power, to laugh and to cry and enjoy God's work in them that only someone else who had experienced it would even begin to understand. I mean, what a powerful meeting that would have been. Guess what, friends? This is one reason church is so precious. Church is not just a rote thing we do out of habit on Sundays. Church is so precious because we meet to marvel at what God has done for us. I mean, it's almost too good to be true. Who would believe that the Son of God left heaven, came to earth as one of us, lived a perfect life without sin, died on the cross for our sins, even though we didn't deserve it, but then he didn't even stay dead. He rose again, ascended into heaven where he's ruling over all things at the right hand of the Father, and one day he's going to come back and take us, usher in the age to come in which there is never-ending joy in the presence of that God. Who would believe that? except others who have experienced that same grace in their lives. 
So we gather every Sunday to sing and to celebrate, to laugh and to lament, to confess and to cry, to marvel that God Almighty has taken thought for us to rejoice that he has come. That's what church is. People say, what do you guys do at church? You can just sum that up. Say, that's what we do. Okay, now then look at what happens when Mary shows up. Verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. So here's John the Baptist. Remember, that's who the baby in her womb is. He's still in there. He's only at about 24 weeks. And yet, he's already performing his role as the one who would prepare the way for Jesus. He's testifying to the greatness of the child in Mary's womb by leaping for joy when he shows up. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, as we found out when the angel came to Gabriel, or when the angel came to Zechariah, John recognizes who Jesus is. He, he's aware, and that makes him leap for joy. So already we're seeing John saying, hey, when this one shows up, this one who is greater than I am, there's one right response, and it is joy. Then that same spirit, who's already filling John, we read, now fills his mother Elizabeth. And she bursts out like a geyser, unable to contain herself. Now you got to realize, this is not a mild-mannered reflection. She doesn't say, hear Mary's voice and say, Oh dear, blessed are you among women. It says, with a loud cry. This is, I hear Mary and I say, Blessed are you among women. That's the feel here. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now keep in mind, Mary just said, hi. She didn't say, Guess what? I'm pregnant, but no, I've not been with a man. And yes, the son is, this child is going to be the son of God. She just said, Elizabeth. Mary hasn't told her anything. But being filled with God's spirit, she not only knows Mary is pregnant, she knows who this child she carries is. And look how she identifies the child in verse 43. She calls him my Lord. Now this title is most likely, she's probably pulling this from Psalm 110, where the Messiah is called my Lord. So the Holy Spirit here is allowing Elizabeth to rightly identify this unborn child that Mary's carrying as none other than her long-awaited Savior, King. Now one other thing to notice about her excitement here is, notice why she says Mary is blessed. First she just says, blessed are you among women, but then at verse 45, she, she kind of unpacks why. She says, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. In other words, Mary is blessed because she trusted God's promise that he would fulfill his word to her. Now this is meant to be, for us the reader, in sharp contrast to the actions of Elizabeth's own husband, Zechariah who, for all we know, might have been very sheepishly and silently standing right there. 
Because when Gabriel spoke to him, he wasn't totally convinced that God could or God would do what he promised. But Mary believed. And now Elizabeth announces she is blessed because she trusted the Lord's promise. Now again, put put yourself in Mary's shoes. Imagine you've just taken this 80 to 100 mile journey. You're exhausted, you're beat down. Who knows what you've been thinking the last three or four days. You just got this crazy news. You've been hiking, you show up and you hear all that. Imagine how encouraging Elizabeth's words would have been to Mary. Days earlier, she'd received the most incredible, mind-boggling news she'd ever gotten. And now, here is her relative Elizabeth, who is visibly pregnant with an impossible child of her own, confirming to Mary that the child she bears is no ordinary child, but the Lord himself. In other words, everything that Gabriel had said is true. And Mary was right to believe him. So when Mary hears this, I mean, what could she do? She bursts out into song like a geyser. Now, before we look at the particulars of what she sings, let me say something about the song as a whole. The first and main thing is this song Mary sings is dripping with Bible. She either quotes from or references passages from Genesis, Deuteronomy, 1st and 2nd Samuel, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. Every single line of her song is linked to somewhere else in the Bible. This is because Mary's heart was filled with God's word. And keep in mind, Mary couldn't read. But she would have heard these scriptures at synagogue and sung them in her home. And she soaked her mind in God's word so much that when her life gets turned upside down and something totally unexpected happens, guess what comes out of her? Bible. She's like what Charles Spurgeon once said of the pastor John Bunyan. Here's what Spurgeon said of him. He said, read anything of his and you will see that it is almost like reading the Bible itself. He had read it till his very soul was saturated with Scripture. He cannot give us his pilgrim's progress, which he wrote, without continually making us feel and say, Why, this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere. His blood is Bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting the text, for his very soul is full of the Word of God. And here we see Mary's the same way. At her most shaken and crazy point in her life, she's not taking time in a a tower somewhere to quietly reflect and do a Bible study and write down the prayer. This is in the moment. And what's coming to her mind, inspired by the Spirit, is the words of Scripture. And my prayer for us is, may we be people like this. People whose hearts and minds and souls are so full of the word of God that it just flows out of us. Another thing to keep in mind here, Mary's a teenager. Maybe. She may be only 12. What kills me is that today some people think young people can't be expected to learn the Bible or learn theology because they're too young for that. 
So entertain them, give them games. But the, the serious stuff, that's just for adults. Now, at the same time, we send them to school where they learn calculus, biology, foreign languages, and computer coding. But we think somehow the Bible is too hard for them. Friends, it's not. Young men and young women, fill your hearts and minds with God's word. Not so young men and women, fill your hearts and minds with God's word. Because the kind of song Mary sings here, this song of joyful worship, flows out of a heart that is saturated with scripture. It's like a sponge that's soaked up God's word. And so now when she, her life is kind of wrung a little bit, what comes out? Exactly what she soaked up. So one question for us is, if all of our hearts are sponges, what are you soaking up? How do you know? Well, when things don't go the way you anticipate and you're kind of wrung a little bit, what comes out? May we be people that are soaked and saturated with God's word. All right, so let's look at Mary's song itself now. The first thing we see is that Mary magnifies God. Look at verse 46. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So Mary's responding to all that God has done for her and all that he's promised to do. And what comes bursting out of her is this deep, heartfelt worship. This isn't just surface level singing. She's not simply mouthing the words on a screen. She says that her soul magnifies the Lord. Her spirit rejoices in God. In other words, this is coming from way, way, way down deep, the deepest part of her being. So the question for us is, okay, well, how does a soul magnify the Lord? By feeling and sensing and knowing and speaking the greatness of God. It glorifies, it praises, it exalts the Lord. And that's what Mary's soul is doing. Her soul is crying out in the song, Holy is his name. He's merciful. He's mighty. He's strong. He's good. He's glorious. And as she feels this overwhelming sense of amazement at all that God is, what she feels, it says, is joy. When she reflects on the greatness and goodness of God, it's not just a sterile accumulation of facts. It delights her. Her spirit rejoices in God, her Savior. Now what's amazing is that this magnifying and this rejoicing are not two things, but one. Mary is magnifying the Lord by rejoicing in God, her Savior. This is what all true worship is. It's not just seeing the greatness of God, it's savoring the greatness of God. Not just looking at the beauty of God, but loving the beauty of God. She doesn't just describe who God is. She delights in who God is. And notice that her worship here is personal. This God, she does not identify him just as the Savior. Mary calls him God, my Savior. In other words, she knows and freely confesses that she was a sinner just like the rest of us. And because of her sin, she knew she needed a Savior. And when God promised that he was sending one and it would be in the person of her son, she rejoiced. So this morning, let me ask you, how's your heart doing? 
As you hear this story of the Savior coming, does your soul magnify the Lord? Are you amazed and awed? Do you simply know the facts? Like you can recount and you can tell me this, the Christmas story. Or does your spirit rejoice in God your Savior? Like Mary, do you rejoice because Jesus is your Savior? Are you trusting him for the forgiveness of your sins? Is he your hope, your joy, your king? If not, I pray that he will be before you leave today. Okay, then Mary's song reminds us that the news that God was sending a Savior should cause us to birth forth to both magnify and rejoice in him. Now let's look at the first set of reasons why she rejoices in God her Savior. Notice how verse 48 starts. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Now when Mary talks about why she magnifies and rejoices in God her Savior, it's because she knows three things about her story. We see these all right here. Here's what she knows. She knows she's a humble servant. She knows he's a mighty God. And she knows he's done great things for her. Let's look at this. First, she knows who she is. She knows that there is nothing about her that makes her particularly worthy of God's saving. She says that God looked on her humble estate. That point of that is that she's not caught God's eye because of, of how great she is. There's nothing about her that's noteworthy. She's not privileged or powerful. In fact, she's young, poor, and remarkably unremarkable. She's a nobody from nowhere with nothing to make her stand out. And yet, Mary says, God looked on my humble estate. What does that mean? It means God took notice of her. This teenager in some forgotten town who no one else might have even noticed was noticed by God. He looked upon her and her situation. God saw her circumstances and God chose her to play a part in his story. Friends, I don't know if this is true for any of you, but do you ever just wonder, does anybody even care about me? Does anyone even see me? I mean, not just that they see me walk in the door, but do they see me? Do they notice me? If you've ever felt anything like this, Mary's song is here to remind us that God looks upon the humble estate of his servants. God sees you. God knows you. He notices you and your situation. And he looks upon you to help you. He comes to help the humble and lowly, the unknown and the forgotten, those who feel like their lives are stuck and going nowhere fast. God looks upon the humble estate of his servants. That's the first thing that Mary makes clear. The second thing we see here is that this God who takes notice of the humble is none other than the mighty God. Deuteronomy 10:17 says, 
The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. And Mary knew that this God was the God who saw her, the Almighty, the King of creation, the Mighty One who created everything out of nothing simply by His Word, the Mighty One who rescued His people out of Egypt with mighty signs and wonders, who split the sea, who caused the sun to stand still, who conquered kings and nations, who sent fire from heaven, who crumbled city walls, who caused both famines and floods, and who rules over all the earth. The mighty God of whom Job said, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Mary rejoiced because the one who took notice of her was that mighty God. Mary knew that whatever God promised to do for her, he was more than able to do. Why? Because he is mighty. Friends, do you remember that the one who takes notice of us is mighty? Mary rejoiced not just because God sees, but because he's sovereign. It's not just that he cares and wants to help, but he's wringing his hand. What can I do? What can I do? He's mighty and able to help. Even when our circumstances are so confusing and so hard that we have no idea how God could ever do what he promised, we have the same good news Mary received from the angel last week in verse 37. Nothing will be impossible with God. Why is that true? Because he is the mighty God. Application, ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with his love he befriend thee. So Mary rejoiced because she was a humble servant, but she had a mighty God. And third, this mighty God had done great things for her. In other words, this mighty God had used his might for her good. He came to her in her humble estate. He used all this power that did all those things I just named. He used it to work in her something she would have never believed. Now for Mary, that uniquely meant giving birth to the Savior of the world. But the reality is that he who is mighty has done great things for us as well. And he's done it through that son born by Mary. Galatians 4.4 we read, When the fullness of time had come... God sent forth his son, born of woman, which woman? Mary, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Friends, God looked upon our humble estate as slaves of sin and he sent his son to redeem us from the curse of sin and death. He looked upon our helpless state and led us to the cross. Where we beheld God's love displayed, he suffered in our place. He bore the wrath reserved for us so that now all we know is grace. And in his grace, he didn't just make us free, he made us family. We've been adopted into the very family of God. Friends, he who is mighty has done great things for us. Now, in the last section of her song, Mary's going to sing about how God hasn't just helped her specifically, 
but how he is helper of all the humble. Look at, starting in verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Now all through these verses we see a principle that runs throughout the whole Bible. That principle is God opposes the proud but he helps the humble. In fact, that's exactly what we read in 1 Peter 5, 5, where it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Here, Mary says the same thing in a few different ways. First, she says his mercy is for those who fear him. In other words, these are the ones who receive his help. Who? The ones who walk in humble trust and obedience. The ones who know God is mighty, I am humble, And I need him to do great things for me. Those are the ones, it says, who see the strength of his arm working on their behalf to save and support. But those who are not humble and who are instead proud in the thoughts of their hearts, God uses the strength of that same arm to scatter. These proud ones, these are the ones who think they don't need God. I can take care of myself. I don't need to depend on God. They think they're good enough, strong enough, smart enough, wealthy enough to get by without him. One powerful example example scripture gives us of this is King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar was was a great and powerful king. There's no denying that. And one day, he's on the roof of his palace, kind of overlooking his vast kingdom. And scripture records that he said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my great power, as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Now, Nebuchadnezzar was proud in the thoughts of his heart. He looked at this great kingdom and he said, I did this. These buildings, these people, this land, everything I see, my mighty power has made me what I am and given me what I have. It's all for my glory. And what did God do? He did exactly what he says in our passage in verse 52. He brought down the mighty from their thrones. He scattered Nebuchadnezzar in the pride of his heart. In fact, he humbled and brought him so low that for a time he lost his mind and lived like an animal, eating grass in the field until he came to his senses and to know that God is the mighty one, not us. That's a very powerful and in some ways graphic example of what it looks like. But the problem for us this morning is that all of us, have a little Nebuchadnezzar in us. We're all tempted to look out over our lives, our own little kingdoms, if you will, and think in our hearts, probably not out loud, we know, we know that's not acceptable, but think in our hearts, I did this. My job, my family, my home, my reputation, my relationship with God, 
I have built this by my mighty power. We take credit for things that were graciously given to us by God. We think we can handle life on our own without God's help. So we go long stretches of life completely ignoring God. We don't pray. Instead, we focus our efforts on what we can do in our might. Why would I? I don't have time to pray because I got to send the email. I don't have time to pray because I got to go to that meeting. I got to go finish that project. I, I got to do more because my life is built by my might. So friends, my question for us this morning is where do you see this in your heart? What are the things that if you're honest, deep, deep down, you would say, I did that. I have that because of me. I made good choices. I worked hard. I sacrificed. I earned this. Friends, it's so important for us to do that searching of our hearts and to root out this pride because here's the scary thing. God opposes the proud. That means he's your opponent. He's against the proud. The mighty God, who we just said earlier, can do all things. He actively opposes those who are proud and arrogant. He scatters them and will bring them down from their thrones. So that is a terrifying thought. Having that all-powerful God against you. Because no matter how mighty you may think you are, you are no match for him. But here's the good news. God loves to flip things upside down. He loves reversals. In fact, he's a God of great reversals. So if we're proud and arrogant, yes, God will bring us down from our self-made thrones. But if you are lowly and humble in heart, God will lift you up. Do you see that in verse 52? He exalted. That means he lifted up those of humble estate. In 1 Peter 5, right after Peter told us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, here's the next thing he says. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Do you hear it? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that he can lift you up. God loves to lift up the humble. It's like he just goes around looking to say, who needs lifted up today? He just gets a, a charge out of it, a rise, saying, like, I want to lift up the lowly. That's what I do, and I delight in it. And how did Peter say we humble ourselves? It's not by rending our garments and sitting in sackcloth and ashes and saying, I'm so awful. It says, by casting our anxieties on him. We humble ourselves by admitting, God, I can't do this on my own. By saying we need God's might to raise us up. So the mighty are brought down, but the lowly are raised up. That's the first reversal. Then look at the second one in verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. So once again, we got two types of people. On the one hand, we have those who are rich. Now, we automatically think money, and it definitely means money, but it doesn't only, means, only mean money. Think of these as those who who believe they have all they need. Material 
relational, reputational, whatever the category, like I've got it all. I'm rich in whatever I would want. So in fact, they think, what could God offer them? I mean, just like if you walked up to a billionaire and offered to give them charity, they would be insulted. Like, are you kidding me? I don't need your paltry little 20 bucks. I'm a billionaire. They think they have all that they need and they're insulted that anyone would think they might need help from God. Well, what does God, say, what does God do with people like this? It says he sends them away empty. The pastor D.L. Moody had a great line. He once said, God sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. So that's what happens if we think we're full of ourselves. But on the other hand, here's the reversal. Look at the beautiful promise in the first part of verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things. So in other words, if you come to God thinking you've got it all together and I don't need God, I don't need, I don't, maybe I'll come just to like toss some coins your way as a little act of charity, as though God's the beggar on the street. God says, no, 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 you, you're going away empty. But if you come saying, God, I'm empty, I'm hungry, I'm needy, I need you. You are what my heart is craving. Only you can satisfy me. When we come like that, like a humble beggar instead of a haughty billionaire, God doesn't just give you a little handout. He fills you. And he doesn't just fill you. He fills you with good things. Psalm 107 says, He satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul. He fills with good things. Friends, if you're here, I don't, if I've never met you, I know this is true. All of us are looking for something to satisfy us. That's true without exception. But what I also know is that only Jesus offers satisfaction so deep and so lasting that he can say to our hungry souls, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So yes, it's okay, and we ought to enjoy all the other good things God has given us, but let's look to Christ alone for our real satisfaction. Let's say and mean, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. Now, it's so fitting that Mary sings about these great reversals, about how the mighty are brought low, the humble are raised up, how the rich are sent away empty, while the hungry are filled. I say that it's fitting because when Jesus came, the way he brought about these great reversals was by experiencing his own great reversals. See, in the gospel, God lifts up the lowly by coming down. He fills up the hungry by emptying himself. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Philippians 2, we read how Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, the gospel is that the richest 
and mightiest one emptied himself and became poor. He humbled himself and came as a lowly baby born in a barn full of animals to this teenage girl from the middle of nowhere. And that's why at Christmas, in one of our carols, we sing, Why lies he in such mean estate? Mean is just another word that means humble. We're saying, why does he lie in such humble estate? Why is he in so lowly a place? The answer is, he lies in such a mean estate to raise up those of humble estate. But he didn't just humble himself to be born lowly. He humbled himself to die lowly. Even death on a cross. Jesus died for every time that you and I are proud in the thoughts of our hearts. For every time that we think we're mighty as we look out from our make-believe thrones. For every time that we think we're rich enough without needing God. And he did it so that he might raise us up and fill us with good things in him. This is the good news, friends. Finally, I want you to notice one last thing. In verses 54 and 55, look there. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. I want you to key in on two little parts of that. He helped as he spoke. He helped as he spoke. In other words, all the great things God was doing for the humble were according to what he had promised. God was keeping the promise he made to Abraham so long ago because our God is a God who keeps his promises. So when the mighty God promises to help the humble, we can take him at his word. And it says he does it all in remembrance of his mercy. That means that God's motive for helping the humble is something in him, not something in us. It's his mercy, not anything about us. And the good news is, if it's something in him and not in us, he never changes. Which means that he will always, always, always help the humble because of his mercy. Friends, we have a mighty God who helps the humble. He lifts the lowly and fills the hungry with good things. He who is mighty has done great things for us through his son. And because he is the helper of the humble, may our hearts magnify the Lord and rejoice in God our Savior.